while they're passing out the Bibles, I'll just share a, a story about uh, there's a there was a woman at Stanford named Lois, and um, I get this story from uh, if you can put up the PowerPoint, I get this story from the book called Out of the Salt Shaker by Rebecca Pippert. So this woman named Lois at Stanford, she um, she was skeptical about the existence of God. And she lived with her boyfriend, but she had conservative Asian parents who would have been appalled to know that she was living with him, but she didn't. they didn't know about that. And uh, Rebecca Pippert was visiting the Stanford campus, and so she... Um, she invited Lois to come to the to the campus, and or she invited Lois to come to a, a, a Bible discussion to talk about the person of Jesus. She said, "Okay, I'll come, but the Bible won't have anything relevant to say to me." When Rebecca Pick, Rebecca, Rebecca Pippard, before the, the the discussion started, she picked out the passage in the scripture, and it was from John chapter 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well. And everybody in the group was reading the scripture in, in a circle as they went around. And she thought that she had arranged it so that she wouldn't embarrass Lois, but it just turned out that it didn't work out the way she had expected. And the verse came up, and Lois read what Jesus was saying, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for the man you have is not your husband. And Lois paused and she said, this is a bit more relevant than I had expected. <laughs> she had never really felt loved by her parents. And so after the discussion, she stayed on and she talked with Becky Pippert for an extended period of time. And she, Becky was explaining to her that you can't, satisfy all your needs through romantic love. She said, that's amazing because my boyfriend said he feels pressured because he can't meet all my needs. And so as the discussion went on, she realized that Jesus could really meet her needs, and she decided she wanted to follow Jesus. But the only problem was her boyfriend, she needed to move out. So I come here, this is page 43 in the book, it says, After dinner, the students who had attended the Bible discussion stopped me in the hall saying they were fascinated by the study on Jesus. Then we heard a noise and turned around to see what it was. Here came Lois, walking slowly down the corridor, carrying several suitcases and smiling with tears streaming down her cheeks. I silently thanked God. I too felt the tears slip down. Seldom have I seen a more graphic picture of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Everyone began asking her why she had left home. Oh no, I haven't left home. I finally found my home, she replied. You see, today I've become a Christian. That one decision had far-reaching effects, and that same night, three women on the floor decided that they, too, wanted to follow Jesus. Another woman who had assumed she was a Christian realized that she wanted no part of it, 
if it demanded total commitment. The next day, Lois was told that she could move into a dorm, unheard of at such a late date, and she discovered her new roommate was a dynamic, mature believer. And I bring up that story because it shows how God opens up hearts. And when God opens hearts, it leads to obedience. And the obedience leads to joy, and the joy overflows. And the overflowing joy leads to others following the Lord too. We're going to be looking at Acts, but before we come to Acts, I want to tie together Luke and Acts. So we can think of our uh, looking at Acts today as sort of a continuation of Nick's series on Luke. Um, and so look at the background, some of the things that Luke's already covered, or that Nick has already covered in Luke. Luke 3.22, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. And chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit when he goes out into the desert to be tempted. And he returns from the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 4, verse 18, you can see Luke, <clears throat> Nick has just gone through this more recently. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Here he's reading in the synagogue at Nazareth from the prophet Isaiah. So 700 years before Jesus, it's already prophesied the Messiah will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the prophetic spirit of God hasn't spoken for 400 years, so the people have been waiting a long time. Finally, Jesus is fulfilling their expectation. The Lord has come. But Jesus said, it's not just for him. It's going to be for all of us. And John, John the Baptist points that out. He pointed that out in chapter 3, verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we see the fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 2, when the tongues of fire come down and rest on each individual which shows us that the Spirit of God is coming to all those who follow Jesus. All those who believe in him have the Spirit of God on them, each and every one. So Jesus My clicker stopped. Can you forward to the next slide? Yeah. Oops. Back. Oh, it's catching up now. Go back. So Jesus follows up on that, and he says in Acts 1, 4 to 8, and he refers back to what John the Baptist had said. In Acts 1, 4 through 8, he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized 
with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So by doing this, Jesus has given them the outline for the whole book of Acts. So the time, there's a sense of anticipation. The time of the Messiah has come. The Spirit has come on Jesus. Now the Spirit is released to them, to all of the the disciples, and, and now to us. And they've been waiting for this, anticipating this for a long time. And and they're thinking, this must be the time when the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I mean. You will receive the Holy Spirit. That's what you're waiting for. And what's the purpose? The purpose of the Spirit coming to them, Jesus says, is it for our joy? That's not what he emphasizes here. Yes, the Holy Spirit comes and fills us with joy, but he says in this verse, it's so that we will be his witnesses. And then he outlines the whole book of Acts. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and we see that the book of Acts, starting out at Jerusalem, and there are thousands of people coming to believe in the Lord. Day by day, they're adding to their numbers. And then it goes on to cross the first cultural barrier for the Greek-speaking Jews and the Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking Jews. They needed to get along with one another. And so they cross that first cultural boundary, and then they go out from there to Judea and the rest of and Samaria. And it takes a little bit more courage for them to go out to Samaria, and they, they get persecuted and they're scattered. But they come back to Jerusalem and God breaks down another barrier and sends Peter a vision with a sheet coming down with a bunch of unclean animals and tells him to eat. He's like, I wouldn't eat those. But God says, what I made is clean. Eat it. And then the Gentiles come and they need to hear the gospel and then they're saved. So God breaks through another barrier And the gospel goes out to Gentiles. And finally, there's the mission from Antioch where Paul is sent out and he goes to the Jews, but he finds that the Gentiles are believing. So they come back to Jerusalem and then that message is validated. In other words, the Gentiles are coming to faith. Yes, it's a good thing. And we rejoice in that, and that's what was validated in Acts chapter 15. So now we come to the next chapter, Acts 16, and that's where we're going to be focused. We're looking now where the gospel is moving into Europe. My clicker is not working. There it is. So we've um, we've now moved from... Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and now we're going towards the ends of the earth. 
And Paul has just had a vision where a man from Macedonia that's in Greece was calling for help. The Holy Spirit had prevented him from going back around the area where we call modern-day Turkey. And so they're moving and advancing from the east to the west, from Turkey to Greece. And when they go to Turkey, from Turkey to Greece, they're moving from a largely predominantly Asian culture now to a more Western or more European cultural center. And especially the, the fact that they're going into Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony. So there's a lot of Roman culture, which is really coming further from the West, from Italy. And so there's some things that have changed now. Well, when Paul goes and journeys across from Turkey to Greece, he's joined by Luke. And so in verse 10, we see Luke is, um, <clears throat> Luke changes the, the person of the writings from third person to second person. In other words, he's not saying they did this and that. He says, we did this and that. We sailed here. We went there. So now you're getting a firsthand view of what's going on. An eyewitness account. And we come, start out <clears throat> in the book of Acts. We're kind of in, in a bird's eye view looking down. Or like if you're in the airplane and you're looking down over the city and you see the big picture. And now when Luke joins the group, he gives us a more personal view. And so that's what we're going to see as we turn towards Acts 16, 12 to 15. From there, we sailed to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what, Paul, what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We're going to read that one more time. I'm going to switch to the NIV. We're going to read from the NIV. And this will just give us another chance to look at the passage see it from a little bit different perspective. And the NIV in this particular passage flows a little bit more smoothly. It's a little easier to understand. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. 
When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. If you've watched really closely, you might notice that there's one phrase that's the same in both the NIV and the ESV. The Lord opened her heart. So we're going to look at that first. So what we're going to see is the Lord opens hearts, and we'll see how the methods of getting the gospel out have to adapt to the circumstances, but the message of the gospel is always the same. So that's the outline of what we're going to be talking about today. A little bit of background on Lydia. Lydia was the woman's name, but it also was a place. It was an area in western Turkey, so just across from the Adriatic Sea, from, from Greece on the other side. And Lydia, this region, includes the city of Thyatira. So this was Lydia from Lydia. But... That was common for people to name, be, name their children after the place where they were from. Thyatira was known for its purple dye, but it wasn't the kind of purple that we would probably think of as purple in our culture. They, um, they had a little bit broader range for the word. And so their colors probably was a little bit more of a red color, um, something like this... Um, these rugs. This is a dye made from the madder plant. Now, there was a royal purple that the emperor would have worn, something like that, but those were generally produced further east in Lebanon near Tyre. So in Thyatira, they would have made this kind of dye, but it wasn't so expensive, but it still was expensive enough that she probably made a pretty decent living. And so when she invites the group to her home, she has a big enough home to accommodate them. And when they talk about her household, she probably has servants as well because of her level of income. So you're imagining that she's not just inviting Paul, she's inviting the group of people. And so there's no scandal, there's no problem with that. People wouldn't have said, oh, look at her, she's inviting a man into her home, it's a whole group. So that's kind of the background And um, so the Lord opened her heart, and she and the members of her household were baptized. And she, so she convinced Paul to stay for a while with her. And that that reminds us of the last message that we heard on uh, from from me was when we, I was talking about Luke chapter ten, the, the person of peace. So. God, um, you know, leads us to somebody who opens their heart, and then those people in turn in, are hospitable, welcoming to the person who's carrying the message of the gospel. And so they're they're called in, in Luke chapter ten. They're called the person of peace. So the Lord opened her heart. Now, 
what I get from this so far is I'm very much encouraged because it's the Lord who opens hearts. It's not up to me. Because if it's up to me, it's going to be a big problem. Yeah, I, I can't do that. In fact, uh, I'll just pick out another passage from uh, out of the salt shaker. And Becky Pipper says, We can learn to expose our faith, not impose it. As we've seen, we cannot make someone a Christian. Only the Holy Spirit of God can truly change a heart. Consequently, though we are called to let our faith be known, we are not called to force it on others. In fact, our evangelism, if our evangelism reflects an aggressive style, it could indicate our misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit. We could not convert anyone if our life depended on it. And that's really good for me because I know I'm not the kind of person everybody says, yeah, I want to be just like him. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't change my stripes, you know, become something I'm not. But the Lord is the one who opens hearts. So it's not dependent on me. And God chooses the person of peace. just want to talk, tell a little bit about another person whose heart the Lord opened. Uh, this was somebody we knew who went by the English name of Coco. And when I first met her, she was coming to, um, she was really considering the claims of Christ. And she wanted to follow Jesus. And she told me, she said, I'm, I'm, Worried, she says, because I have a boyfriend who's not a, not a Christian. Can I still get married to him? <laughs> and I, I couldn't tell her what to do. I just pointed out some of the difficulties that that would bring. That later on, especially in raising children, you would have different approaches and it wouldn't be wise. And she went away kind of heavy hearted and she prayed. But the next time I saw her, she was filled with joy. It was a lot like the story from out of the salt shaker of uh, the, the person in Stanford, Lois. But Coco was so full of joy, and she loved the little children. So she taught Sunday school and church, and she, she loved to teach the Sunday school so much. And then she discovered that in the Chinese churches and the, the house churches didn't, didn't have a real developed way of communicating the gospel to their children. And in the official church um, that was sanctioned by the government, they, until recently they hadn't even allowed children to be baptized until they were 18. So there was not really any structure to teach the children. And this really weighed on her heart, and so she had a vision to go and pass this wonderful Sunday school concept to the Chinese churches. So she applied to come to the U.S. to study for a master's degree. She went to Liberty University in Virginia. And just before she left, I I saw her and I was just encouraging her. I said, you know, I'm so excited about your vision to 
bring the gospel to the, the children in China. I said, I just pray that if you meet a man there and get married, that he would have a vision for China, that you'd be able to carry out what you plan. And she took those words to heart. She went there and she met a man who was a loved, wonderful believer in the Lord, and he had a heart for China. And they came back. And she was able to do what she had had in mind. But we came back to the States, so we only got to see her when we visited. And visited the first time we met her and her husband. It was just a wonderful, very joyful meeting together. And then last summer we went back again and we saw her one more time. And she's, now they've got their own children. And she, she said, oh, I, I just haven't had the chance to, to teach the, the churches about Sunday school. We haven't given training recently. But she said, but my husband is teaching the class on religion at the university, and he's, he's explaining the gospel to the students in the, on the campus. This is officially sanctioned, allowed. And I thought, wow, that's so wonderful. So I was so encouraged and overjoyed. It almost made me cry when I was talking with her that God opened up her heart, and what she gave up, she gained a whole lot more. And now there's so all these children that know the Lord because of her, and it's, 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 um, that's what God does as we take a step in obedience to the Lord. And then the, the other application here is to accept the hospitality of the person of peace. So the person welcomes you with the gospel, you want to take time to spend with them and, and lead them deeper in discipleship. Well, it's not only the individual who benefits from that open heart. There's also the corporate results. And you look at the situation there in Philippi. <clears throat> there was no Jewish synagogue, just some God-fearing women. God opened up her heart. Paul and his group stayed only for a few days maybe a week or two, and then um, Paul was in prison. There was the Philippian jailer was converted, and his family, they were added to the church. And then they left. But I think Luke stayed behind because it changes back from we did this to they did that. And so Paul and his group moved on. They went, traveled some, some more for probably a couple of years and then it changed back to we again when they joined Luke and Philippi, and then they traveled on together. So Luke probably did help the church to grow and, and discipled them. Um, but we do see with a pretty small beginning that the church grew to something where they were able to encourage Paul, and they were able to support him. And so you see that Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's very positive and encouraging in its overall tone. Philippians 4, 15 to 18, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. 
Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So came from this very small beginning, God opened her heart and that of the Philippian jailer to this church who is unique in their support for Paul and his ministry. So we can take that and apply to ourselves. Mercy Hill Church is small. We don't have a lot of people. But the Holy Spirit of God, the same Spirit who was in Jesus when he did ministry on the earth, is in us. The power of God is released for our witness. And we can't underestimate what that power can do. So, the only thing is, we need to be aware that God calls us to something, to be a witness. So we want to look out and not just meeting our own needs, but we need to go out into the world and to be a witness just as Jesus called us to do. The Holy Spirit is given to us for a purpose, that we would be his witnesses. So it's it's not just that we have the Holy Spirit to fill us with joy, but that joy overflows from us and goes out into the world. Just like uh, like the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, the second verse. And Nick talked about the third verse last week, so I get to say the second verse. Repeat the sounding joy. So we get the joy of the Lord in our hearts, and we can repeat that, and we can take it out into the world wherever we go. So the first thing is that the Lord opens hearts. The second is we need to adapt our methods. How we approach people with the gospel needs to adjust to the circumstances. So you look at Paul's circumstances. In this case, he has been going from city to city and going into the synagogues. And he would go into the synagogue and he would teach there in a formal setting. And then he would start to reason with the Jewish people and some would believe and then he would start his church from there. Now there's no synagogue. It's a Roman colony. The culture is different. There's no Jews that we know of at that time in the colony of Philippi. So they search for someone who already has a concept of God and who is believing in the Jewish faith, but not a full, full-fledged circumcised believer. And so here they are, they go out of the city because they're looking for a smaller group that doesn't want to attract attention to itself. They go to the river or a little stream that's nearby, so there's running water that they can use for the ritual cleansings that they would have as part of the Jewish, following the Jewish faith. 
And they go on the Sabbath because they expect that's the time when they would be worshiping. And they find out there a group of ladies. So there's no rabbi available to them and they welcome Paul because Paul is going to teach them something from the scriptures. So they're actually all very excited to have him. So Paul had to adjust his approach from a Jewish audience to a Gentile audience who knew about the Old Testament because they were they were interested. And, and by the way, it was kind of well known in the Roman Empire that ladies were there were a lot of ladies who were interested in the in the in the uh, Jewish religion. So a lot of Jewish uh, a lot of ladies were were converting to Judaism, and that was something that some of the historians wrote about and complained about. <laughs> but not so many men, and so it wasn't surprising for them to find a group of ladies out there. So. They're, you know, Paul is instead of preaching in a synagogue, he's now in this informal setting, which is outdoors, and there's no quorum of men for them to be able to read the um, the Torah. That was the custom at that time. The Jewish men had to gather ten of them before they could open up the Torah and read it. And in fact, it's still true today among Orthodox Jewish groups that they would need 10 men in order to open up the Torah to read. But this didn't bother Paul at all. He goes in, he starts to teach them. There's no building. It's just like if we were outside meeting in the in the park outside of the building here, which we have done a couple of times, by the way. right? The Lord works through all different circumstances. So later on, we're going to see Paul even adapting further as he goes deeper into Greece, and he goes to Athens, which is their philosophical cultural hub. And so he takes a more philosophical approach as he gives the message to the, the Greeks in Athens. They're, there's not even God-fearers. They're, they're totally Gentiles. And so he makes a connection to their unknown God and says, well, now I'm going to tell you who the unknown God is. And he explains it to them. So he's still bridging to some concept in their mind that can help them to understand the gospel. And that's always been his approach. We need to make some adjustments today as well. If we think about back in the 19th century, and even well into the 20th century, public preaching was very, very effective. People would gather, thousands of people would gather, and then the public proclamation of the gospel would happen, and people would be weeping in repentance. They would f- fall on their face before God. They would cry out. I mean, this, this happened in the United States. It happened in England. It happened in a lot of places. But we see things have changed a bit now, and so most of the people coming to faith today are coming to faith in the context of relationships, individual communication, or in small groups, or people opening up the Bible and saying, let's look at it, the Bible together and discover what it has to say about our daily life. There's a quote, this comes from a book called Evangelism 
Made Slightly Less Difficult. It's a book by Nick Pollard. He says, one Sunday morning in 1742, John Wesley stood in a Newcastle street and sang Psalm 100. A large crowd gathered to listen, and he told them, at 5 p.m., with God's help, I designed to preach here again. And that afternoon, thousands of people turned out to hear him. Suppose I were to do the same thing in Newcastle today. Would hundreds gather to listen? Would thousands come back to hear me preach? What if I went to Christmas in the Park in San Jose and sang Psalm 100 and told them I was going to come back a little bit later to preach? I think people would think I was a crackpot, right? Times have changed. Our approach needs to accommodate some to some extent. It used to be that it was most effective to teach propositional truths. Tell people what it is and what it isn't. But that was in a more modernist philosophical environment. People would think in terms of what's right and what's wrong. And I need to do what's right. Today, people don't understand that concept very well. So it's hard for us to come out and just give people a list of propositional truths and say, okay, you need to believe that. What seems to do better for us, especially where we have a multicultural environment, which is where we live here, is we need to listen to people, hear where they're coming from, and adjust our approach to them as individuals or in small groups. Stories can be much more effective in conveying the truths of the gospel to people than just telling them the facts. So those things we we can make adjustments to. And by the way, the scriptures are filled with stories that convey the truth of the gospel. So the Bible is not averse to us adapting to that approach. And then there are some differences that are in, in place or region that are different rather than just in time. So, for example, when we lived in China, a lot of times teaching the propositional truths was quite effective because people were looking for that expert who was really knowledgeable and they wanted to have that teacher to explain to them what they should believe. On the other hand, among themselves, stories was very effective as well. And so you have kind of a combination of the two approaches. <clears throat> Someone in uh, Austin, Texas, some churches have discovered an approach that's been very effective for them. In Austin, they, um, they would go out in groups of two from 10 to 12 on Saturday morning. They would go out first the first week, they just went out and prayed through the community. And then the second week, they would go to people's homes and ask them, is there anything at all that we can pray for you about? And if the people invited them in, they would pray for them. And then right after praying for them, they would kind of step back, reintroduce themselves, and, and 
like they were going to move on and say, well, is there, would you like us to come back and tell you a true story from the Bible? And some of them would invite them back. And then out of those who invited them back, when they came back the second time, they would share a story from the Bible. And then their testimony and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of those people believed on the second or the third week. Then if they believed, they would start to disciple them. And so they would teach them. They actually didn't just teach them. They opened up the scriptures and then they would have discussion on the seven commandments of Jesus and Acts chapter 2. And they would get them basically prepared so that they would... they would be ready to join a church. So they started with a group of about 20 people going out. And within about a year, they had discipled 130 people into the church. So I would say that was pretty effective in that environment. So I'm hoping that David and I were going to try to do something similar um, in January, but... um, if anybody else is interested to join us, we'd love to have you. We can make two or three groups to go out, groups of two. All right, while our methods need to adapt to the situation, our message is always the same. The message eternally is Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. That never changes. Just to explain a little bit of the gospel content, I'm not saying that this is the only way to present it, but there's a a nice outline of um, the gospel at the end in Appendix 1 and out of the salt shaker. And you only need to remember four words. God, man, Jesus, response. Not that you would always present it this way exactly, but that it's good to have it in your mind so you know what to say, what you're talking about. So if we know God, man, Jesus, and a response, those four words, that can guide us through the whole gospel presentation. Who is God? God is holy. God is the creator of the whole universe. God is perfect. And because God is holy, nothing impure Nothing bad can go into his presence. That brings us to people. People are not holy. People are not perfect. And we well know that. But people in our heart, we're basically selfish, self-centered. We want to do things our own way. We don't want to listen when somebody tells us what to do. And so there's that what the Bible calls sin in our hearts. We have to explain that term to people because it's not a normal word that people use in conversation, the word sin. So once we've explained the concept, and we can, then we can introduce the term. We say, well, <clears throat> because we're, we have sin in our hearts, we cannot enter into God's presence because if we did so, we would instantly die. But God loves us, and he loves us so much that he sent his own son, Jesus, into the world. You can tell 
talk a lot about Jesus. And he loves us, that Jesus um, stood up to the establishment and stood up for the underdog, that he cared about people, that he healed people who were sick, that he had great teaching. We can take people to Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a wonderful, beautiful, very attractive message. But Jesus came into the world because God loves us so much that he sent him into the world to give up his own life to take the punishment that should have been ours onto himself. So he let people nail him to the cross and he died. And then on the third day he rose again. He came back to life. And he told us, and this comes to the response, he told us, if we believe in him and we depend on him to get to God, God will forgive our sins and we can be reconciled, have relationship with God. And we can come into his presence and experience that joy. And that's why we go out and share what we have. So that's the basic message of the gospel. And you'll see that in the book of Acts, there's kind of a consistent strategy. Paul has bridged to people's knowledge. Whatever they have, whatever they know already about God, he works with that. He bridges to that. And the other thing that he's doing is he's searching for where God is opening hearts. And that's where he's going to go. That's where he's going to spend his time. And he's going to make dis- disciples who then will be fruitful and proclaim the gospel to others. So that's the common message and the common strategy. Father, we're so filled with joy because of your word. But we want to obey you. We want to be witnesses where we live and everywhere, Lord. We pray that your gospel will go out We pray that you will work in our hearts to make us to be what you want us to be, to make us to to serve you. Um, Lead us, Lord, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will empower us so that we will know that it's not us who opens hearts, but you, that we will just obey and rely on you for the power to change hearts, to to change people's lives and to make them whole and to make them clean. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.